Last week we looked at Isaiah 40, verse 1, through 44, verse 23. Now I've got to slow down and make sure I'm saying all those properly because, as I'm sure you guys might get annoyed with, with Caleb and I's preaching, we do not normally follow chapter divisions because a lot of times they just aren't helpful um, as you are working through the text. So what I am going to do as a reminder is first I'm going to, um, actually I forgot to have it up while I was praying. That's our text for today, 44, 24 through 48, 22 which is the last verse of 48. Um, and then what I want to first do is just a reminder of the section that we're in, and then I will have the outline of our chapters for today up um, as I'm talking, just as a reminder, because some of the chapter divisions are a little weird. The last one's nice because it's just the last two chapters, but the first two are not. Um, so anyways, last week we looked at Isaiah 40, verse 1 through 44, 23, which is the introduction of the second part of Isaiah, or the book of the servant which is the second book, if you will. In Isaiah, there's the book of the king, and then the book of the servant, and then the book of the conqueror. So we're in the book of the servant right now. And in this introduction, or the first part, we saw the promises and the plans of God. And he has plans to deliver them, both from their physical bondage, which is exile in Babylon, but also, and more importantly, from their spiritual spiritual bondage, which is their captivity and inability to conquer their own sin. And the rest of the Book of the Servant lays out that basically two-act deliverance. And this week, what we're going to be looking at is the first act or the first part of the deliverance, which is going to be chapter 44, verse 24, through the end of chapter 48 or 48, 22. And this is, again, the first part of the deliverance. We're going to see that this is a great deliverance. This is an act of God, and he is worthy of praise for it, and there's a call to praise him for it. But we will also see that this is a great act of deliverance that calls for and shows the need for a greater act of deliverance. So as we look at the chapters for today, I'm just going to leave this up the whole time that I am talking. And as we look at the chapters for today, we are going to be seeing that there are three different sections. And you'll notice that I purposely have some question marks in the section headers for the chapters, and you will see why as I'm explaining. But the first section, 4424 through 458, is God's plan. Cyrus? And then the second part is the defense of that plan. Not that God really needs to defend himself, but he condescends to us and is gracious and merciful to us to explain what he is doing when what he is doing just really surprises us and baffles us. And then we also have the accomplishment of God's plan, which is the third section. And notice I ended that with dot, 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 question. Because it's like, accomplished? And we'll see, we'll see what I mean by these headings as I go. As we start today, in the first verse we're going to look at is 4424. Um, the first section is what Caleb read for us. Um, and that is 4424 through 458. As we begin to look at the first part, this first act of deliverance, the first part of God's two-act plan of deliverance, we have to first acknowledge that we have the advantage of hindsight. We have the advantage of looking back in history, and sometimes that actually can give us a different perspective on events than would have been the perspective of the person to whom the, the prophecy and the foretelling of those events our reaction would be different than what their reaction would have been. We have to first acknowledge that. Because we know, when looking back at history, we know that Cyrus 
was a really cool prophecy, a very specific prophecy, and I don't want to take anything away from that. We also know that, by and large, it worked out well for the Israelites. But we have to keep in mind is that the prophecy of Cyrus would have been received much differently than how we think it would have been received because of our generally positive feelings about it. We see this here even in the opening verses in how this plan of Cyrus is presented and how Cyrus is revealed. And we're going to see it again in the immediate need or the second section, which is the defense of that plan. Because why do you need to defend something that everybody's accepting and very happy about? There's a reason that this plan needs to be defended and explained in the next section, in the second section of our verses today. And how we see the interesting nature of this presentation and the the known response to this um, plan of Cyrus, as we see in the opening section, we see that this plan and this prophecy of Cyrus is enclosed in self-affirmations by the Lord to declare and to affirm to his people that he is ultimately responsible for what Cyrus will do. And we read this as Caleb read those verses. We saw, I will, I will, I am, I am, I have done, I will do, I created. God is constantly giving declarations of self-affirmation. As you look through the verses, um, you see this kind of enclosing of the prophecy. In 44 verse 24, you see the proclamation that he is your redeemer who formed you. I am the Lord who made all things. And then in 25 through the first half of 26, he says, I am the one who makes fools of those who seek other gods and who confirms the word of my messengers. And then skip to the end, in, at the end of this section, in 45 verses 5 through 8. In 45, 5 through 6, you have God effectively saying, I am the Lord and there is no other. And then in 7 through 8, he reminds the reader, that he, I created light and darkness. I created well-being and calamity. And I think, as kind of an aside here, this calamity, what this means is if you think about the whole book of Isaiah, God has shown that he is sovereign and Lord of all the rise and the fall of nations and peoples, and he has shown that he is responsible for the blessing and the destruction. So he is responsible for the well-being and calamity. We've seen this shown again and again and again throughout the book of Isaiah. And we see that he he claims responsibility for these things. I am the Lord who does all these things. I have created it. And then notice also how the promise of Cyrus is like nestled inside of promises that would have been what the people were expecting and wanting to hear. So this promise of Cyrus is like almost like nestled and kind of hidden inside of all these like really more palatable promises to the people. And I just listed a few of them for the sake of showing this point. But in the second half of 26, we see that I declare that Jerusalem and the cities of Judah will be rebuilt. And then 27, I make a way of deliverance and exodus, which is what he means by dry up the rivers. It's exodus imagery, um, the exodus imagery that's all over the book of Isaiah. And then in 28, the first part, you have the prophecy of, the prophecy of Cyrus. And then after that, you say, um, or he says, I say Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the foundations of the temple will be laid. And then we have three quick verses about what Cyrus will do. And then right after that, uh, in 3b of 45, I do this so that you, Cyrus, may know that I am God and I have declared it to be. And then in 4, he says, I do this for the sake of my people. And then in 45, 5 to 6, he says, I do this so that all peoples may know that I am the Lord and that there is no other, which sounds a lot like the Exodus and the whole point of the Exodus. 
All of these that we just read, and I kind of skipped the Cyrus stuff on purpose, all of these promises that were just read were exactly what the people would have expected and wanted to hear. But then what about what is said about Cyrus that is kind of nestled in the midst of all of these proclamations of of God, of his own self, um, everything, that he is everything, that he is the creator, and that he gives all of these more palatable, more good-sounding promises. And often you've got this stuff about Cyrus in the middle. What about how this is framed? God says of Cyrus in 45, or sorry, 44, 28, he says, he is my shepherd. And he also goes on to say in 45, 1, he is the Lord's anointed, whose right hand I have grasped. I will go before you, speaking, God speaking to Cyrus, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I call you by your name. What is interesting is that there is a lot of background to a lot of the stuff that was just said explicitly about and for Cyrus. The words shepherd and anointed are both kingly terms that would have specifically brought to mind the Davidic line. These are words that are used in reference to David and his sons and to his promises being said of Cyrus. And then the rest of the phrases are the same exact phrases that God had used to his people of his work for them and of his specific call to them. Some of these phrases here in 45, 1 to 2 come earlier from Isaiah in things that God has said explicitly to his people. Some of them actually come like phrases from Psalms that God is saying to his people. But all of these phrases are almost verbatim, just copy and paste from messages given to God's people or to David or a son of David. So the scandal of what is being said is that Cyrus is going to do the work of the line of David, is how it's being presented. He is promised to be, in effect, a replacement for the line of David to bring them back to the land. The deliverer being Cyrus, in this exodus, will not be another Moses. We read of Moses in Exodus 3 in multiple places that God had revealed his name to Moses. This was a large part, and when I walked through Exodus last year, this was a very big deal and a large part of Moses' call to be the deliverer, to be the one who leads the exodus. And it was a large part of how he presented himself as the deliverer to the people. It's that God had revealed himself to Moses. But this is not what you see of Cyrus, the new deliverer. So we see of Cyrus that God, or Moses that God had revealed his name to Moses. But we read of Cyrus twice that you, Cyrus, do not know me, being God. We're twice told that Cyrus does not know God. This is purposely included twice to make the point that this is exactly opposite of Moses. And this, the one who does not know God, is the Lord's anointed. This anointed word, again, bringing to mind the line of David. This one who doesn't even know God, this one, this is the Lord's anointed. The hope of the people is going to be the next great conqueror. It's like the next empire that comes up, that takes out the current empire that they're in exile to. That's our next hope. That is the one the one who doesn't even know God. The people are effectively being told that exile will end through a pagan king and that their home going will be 
as a still subject people and that the city and the temple will be rebuilt by the direction of this pagan king. And then all of this is given without any reference to a Davidic restoration of his people. In fact, the Davidic terms are given to Cyrus. This is God's plan. You can see why all this is couched in words of comfort and self-affirmation from God about his people and his plans for his people and his plans for Jerusalem and Judah. Because all of this that was just said about Cyrus to the original audience would have been scandalous. This would have been the exact opposite of what they had wanted to hear. This isn't a new, this isn't a new, Mo, a new Moses. This is a new pagan king. Like, we don't like pagan kings. They tend to take us into exile, and they tend to be our enemies. But this new pagan king is going to be the next Moses, the one who is acting next in the line of David. How is this God's plan? So the scandal of this, which we so easily miss because we see Cyrus as a good thing when we look back historically, and we see him as this great, very specific promise that shows God's uh, omniscience, the all-knowledge, which it is, it is a great prophecy, and it was a great evidence of, yet again, not that we need more evidence, that God knows everything. And I don't want to take away from that. But we miss the fact that this was scandalous to the original audience. And this scandal is what leads into the defense, which is the second part of our text today. And that is 45 um, verse 9 all the way to 46 verse 13. So the first part in 45, 9 through 13, um, a way to summarize this is God's right to use Cyrus. And this is 45, 9 through 13. The first part of the defense of God's plan is seen in these verses in which God basically says that he has the right to do this since he is the creator. All of the pictures in these verses, we see a picture of a potter, a picture of a father, picture of a, of, a, of a mother, and then also of the former of Israel. All of these pictures have the idea of creator. I'm gonna, this is a quick section, so I'm going to read these verses real quick here. It says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or what work, ha- or sorry, your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of these things, sorry, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children? Again, the father and mother imagery that was just used, and the work of my hands, the potter imagery that was just used. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness. And I think a way to read this here, the word righteousness means basically the, the correct path. God has stirred him up in the path that he wants Cyrus to do. And I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward. In other words, this isn't a bargain between God and Cyrus. This is just Cyrus is going to do it because the Lord says it's going to happen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, which again, the Lord of hosts is used so many times through Isaiah, and it is because it is on purpose. Isaiah is a book that is dealing with multiple world empires that to the people of Israel feel like and seem like the most powerful force on earth that is determining their fate 
And that is maybe where they should be putting their allegiance in, in this empire or in the gods of this empire. But God is continually reminding them that he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, greater than any army or any empire that they are currently dealing with. This is a, there is a constant reminder of this throughout Isaiah. So God, as the creator, what he's effectively saying is that he has every right to use Cyrus as his instrument to accomplish his plans. His people may question it, but they are questioning the creator. And then the next part of this defense is seen in 45, verses 14 through 25. And a summary of the second part of this defense of God's plan is effectively that Israel is still central in God's plan for the world. So the second part of this response is seen in 45, 14 to 25, And in these verses, God explains that though a Gentile or a pagan king will function as the next deliverer, Israel is still central to his plan of salvation for the entire world. So this does not change ultimately God's plan. It is just a surprising development in how God is accomplishing his plan. Verses 14 through 17 in chapter 45. Effectively, what they are saying is they tell of a future reversal when nations will bow to Israel, Israel's God, admitting that he is the only God. And as surprising or hidden, as, it, as the wording here in, fifth, in verse 15 says, as, as surprising as, as this is, that this God, who is the God of all, comes from this small little country of Israel that these different nations keep giving a hard time. It's, it's very surprising. It almost seems hidden to the people of the world. But those who look to the idols are ultimately put to shame. And those who look to the Lord will never be ashamed. So what is said here in these verses 14 through 17 is effectively, yes, it feels like this Gentile takeover is happening. But I am still your God. And the God of Israel is going to be the God that all the nations come to and realize I am the true God. And then in 18 through 25, we have effectively an expansion of the the thought of 14 through 17. And 18 to 25 expands this out and invites the nations to come to God. In 18 through 19, God declares that he created with a purpose. I like the wording of 18 through 19 here, so I'm going to read it real quick. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established. It's almost like a choral echoing that's happening here. He did not create it empty, He formed it to be inhabited. In other words, he formed it with a purpose. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. What he is saying in these verses is that he created with a purpose, with a plan. He did not speak in secret or in darkness. And what the wording here, what it's playing on, is that a lot of the other nations, what their priests and their sorcerers would do is they'd have to do kind of these like magic conjuring things, look at the entrails of animals and look at the stars and all this stuff that's like, well, we think this is what it's saying. We're pretty sure based on precedent, kind of, we have this like little book that like the star means this and this entrail facing this way means this. It's like, no, that's not how I spoke to you. I gave you words and I told you my plan. And because I am God, My plan will come true. There is no darkness in what I am saying. If I say it, it will happen. He is that God. He is the God. So 20, assemble yourselves and come. 
Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They, the idols, they have no knowledge who, who carry them about in their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. So in 18 through 19, he declared that he created with a purpose and revealed himself plainly. His words will come true. And then in 20 to 24, what's being developed is a call to the nations to find their hope and their salvation in God rather than in in the idols that cannot deliver, or as in 20 there, they cannot save. He says in 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. Because he can't swear on anybody higher than himself. Usually when you make an oath, you make it to a God, and God's like, I am God. By myself I swear. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, it shall be said, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all of the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The end there, 25, is spoken to the people. It says, when this happens, your hope in me is going to be vindicated and you will glory with the nations that your God, who is the God, will be seen to be God by all the nations. One day this will be seen to be true and every knee will bow. So again, this section here, the second part of the defense that basically lays out to the people that they are still central to his plan and that their hope in him will one day be vindicated. And then in 46 verses 1 through 13, we have the third and the final part of the defense of God's plan. And this one is its kind of a downer, but it's also just almost kind of amusing, because basically the point of this chapter, 46, one, the, all, all 13 verses, is that God is going to accomplish his plan despite the stubbornness of his people. He just gave all these grand promises. I will do this. I am God. There is no other. Everybody will acknowledge me. Oh, and by the way, his own people aren't acknowledging him. But he says, I will still accomplish my plan. Because I am God. I said it. It is going to happen. So in the third and final part of this response, God says that he will accomplish his plan. He will show that he is the only true God. And he will do all of this despite the stubbornness of his people. As you see explicitly the point made in verse 8 and in verse 12, in verse 8 says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. And then in 12, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. In these verses, what is being said here is that the idols of the gods of Babylon are carried. They are burdens. They have to be physically moved. People have to carry them. And because of this, it is just one of the many examples. It's a physical example of the fact that they cannot save. And there's a promise here in verse 2. It says, just as they have to be carried, they will be carried into exile. And you see this in 46, 1 to 2. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Bel is like the, the head god of Babylon, and then Nebo is his son. So basically, like you have like the two highest gods of Babylon. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. The imagery there is like the idols are being taken down and put on beasts of burden. These things, 
you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts, these idols. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. In other words, what he's saying is that the idols can't save because the idols can't do everything, can't do anything. You have to bear them. You have to carry them. And that is a representation of the fact that they can't save you because you are doing the work for the idol. And then in this beautiful transition to switch about talking to him about himself, he says in three, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from your birth. So this transition from the idols that have to be carried and cannot save because they are themselves burdens and have to be born, he says of himself that he has borne his people. He is the exact opposite of the idols. It says, who have been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry and save. He purposely repeats this idea of carry to make the point again and again and again. The idols cannot carry you. They cannot save you. I have carried you, though, the entire time because I am God. The Lord carries, bears his people. He alone can deliver. In short, what this whole chapter is saying is don't look to the idols of Babylon to carry you out of exile. Because that is, again, remember the temptation of the people and their leaders has always been to look to the powerful empire of the world as their source of salvation. Ahaz looked to Assyria to help him. And then Hezekiah, his son, looked to Babylon, the next empire, who who is going to be the next empire after Assyria. So the people are constantly looking to the nations and their gods. Remember how Ahaz had literally given gold from the temple to the the gods and the people of Assyria, basically saying, I trust your gods more than my God. So what God is making the point here in this chapter is don't look to the idols of Babylon where you are in exile. I know that they feel like the most powerful nation right now, and it feels like maybe their gods are more powerful, but their gods can do nothing for you. Their gods have to be carried. But remember, I have carried you all along. I can and will bring you out of exile. It says at the end there in 10 through 13, my purposes and my plans will come true. And reading it just 13, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And then as we transition out of the defense of God's plan, we get into the last two chapters, which is the accomplishment of God's plan. First, in chapter 47, it describes the fall of Babylon. And then in 48, it describes the call of the captive Israel to go home. This section, though, does not end on the happy note. In fact, the the not happy note starts quite a bit before the end. But it's not this happy closing that you might think it is in this act of deliverance of God. So first, in chapter 47, which is, again, the fall of Babylon and God's judgment on it, this is this fall and judgment on Babylon. This is poetically described in wording that serves actually as the basis for Revelation's commentary on the fall of the final Babylon in Revelation 18. So as we're, as you look through chapter 47, some of it sounds kind of familiar. It's because you might be thinking of it in Revelation 18, where a lot of that imagery is picked up on again. In verses 1 through 4, 
Babylon is called to sit in the dust and put on clothing of a slave and an exile. For the Lord, the Redeemer of his people, will act in judgment on her. I like the introduction of 47. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. It just, I, I, don't know, I just, I just vision in my head like this, this almost comic scene of the God of the universe. Just come, come sit, come sit. You're done. Just sit in the dust. And that's, that's all he has to say is like, I'm judging you. You're done. There is no argument. Just come sit in the dust. And then Babylon is called to put on the clothing of a slave and an exile, for that is what she will be. And then in verses 5 through 11, God says that he was angry with his people. We see this in, in 5. Sit in silence and go in darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall be no more called the mistress of the kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. So God says he was angry with his people. He let Babylon judge them, but Babylon has abused them and become prideful. We read of Babylon in verse 8, Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Oh, that phrase sounds a lot like what God has been saying of himself. That's probably pretty dangerous for somebody else to say that. That is. Babylon has become arrogant. Babylon has claimed, I am, and there is no one besides me. This is a claim to ultimate power and supremacy. Babylon thought that she would never go away. We read in the word, in the wording there that she will, she thinks she will never be a widow. She will never, in other words, she thinks she will never have any cause for mourning because she will never be defeated. She thinks that she is supreme, but this is only true of God. And we see time and time again throughout the Bible that when man foolishly and falsely and arrogantly believes himself or a nation believes this true of themselves, that God steps in to show that that is not true. That is just me. Babylon believes herself to be invincible through her power, her wisdom, and her sorcery or her religion, but God will bring sudden destruction on her is what we read in these verses. And in 12 through 13, in kind of a mocking retort to Babylon, in 12, God says, Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divided the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who are, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. In other words, there is no comfort. There is no consolation. There is no security in these things you're looking to. Such to you are those with whom you have labored. You have done business, or sorry, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. The word wander about is actually basically exit stage right. Like, when trouble comes, they leave to whatever path they feel like is going to be best and safest for them. They abandon you, is what is, what is the wording there. And that is why there is no one to save you. In other words, there's no one left. These people who you thought that you could look to for wisdom and guidance, they are going to abandon you. And there's no one to save you because you've looked to the wrong source for your salvation. 
So again, what he says to Babylon is that in the end, her gods and her priests and her diviners will become just like stubble, give no comfort. They will abandon and leave Babylon to destruction. So that is the promise, the the first part of the accomplishment of God's plan. And then in chapter 48, we read of the release of the captives. This final chapter and the second part of the accomplishment of God's plan is the release of the captives from their exile and their call to go home. But what is interesting is you'd think that would come like right at the beginning of 48. That doesn't come till almost the end of chapter 48. And the call comes at the end of a very scathing, long rebuke of his people. So it's a great uh, comfort, I guess. It's, it, and that's why I have this, this whole section, God's plan accomplished, kind of. Like, it, we're going to see this tone here as we work through these verses. In 1 through 2, God calls them Jacob and Israel and Judah. And I think they're in that order on purpose because Jacob first and then kind of subset in Israel and Judah. So pointing back to the combination, the, the unification, the entirety of God's people. And what this does is it reminds them and points them back to his promises to their forefathers. You are the people that I gave these promises to. But he says of them that they do not confess him in right or in truth. See at the end of 48 verse 1, but not in truth or right. And you see, for they call themselves after the holy city and they stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Your, your Bible may have a little number or letter around the, the middle of two there and stay themselves on the God of Israel because that is actually an allusion back to something from the introductory chapters, so the first five chapters, because what it is basically reminding the people of is the image of them finding a, a false sense of security. And they're like, well, we have the God of Israel. God's on our side. He would never judge us. He would never do anything. They're like, they're basically excusing all of their evil ways and all of their rebellion against God by claiming some sort of supposed security in the fact that, well, he's their God and we're, we're in the land. He's never going to do anything. But then the end there, I think, would be better read as, but he is the Lord of hosts. They're, they have forgotten that he is their judge as well. He's the Lord of armies. So I think of the imagery, what's, what's happening here is he said, you are the people that I gave the promises to. You claim all these things, but you claim them falsely. Think of all the content of chapter one about all the emptiness and vanity and, and just straight up lie of, that their religion has become. And then he says in two, I think what's going on with the wording there is like they've mistakenly got this idea that he's some sort of like local deity that they can manipulate that because they live in the land and they do the right motions that they can make him happy and he won't judge him. It's like, no, that's, that's not who I am. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the God of all and I will judge you. I can judge my own people and hold you accountable for your rebellion against me. And then in three through five, he explains that because of their stubbornness, He has always revealed his plan or the former things so that when they happen, they cannot claim that the idols did it. I just, this whole chapter is like, man, does God know his people? (laughs) It's just again and again, if you read these verses, it says, in starting in three, the former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead is brass. I declared them to you from old before they came to pass. I announced them to you, lest you should say my idol did did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. 
God's basically saying, step by step, I have told you exactly what I'm going to do so that when it happens, the current, whatever current idol you're worshiping, you can't claim it was that idol. Because you can look back to the prophecy that I made a long time ago that this is going to happen to prove to you that it was me, not this idol. And then in verses 6 through 11, he transitions from these former things and the reminder that he has always done what he has said. He transitions into new things. And this transition is seen beautifully in the beginning of uh, verse 6 here. It says, you have heard, and I think the reference here, you have heard these former things. So now see all this. In other words, you have heard, and I've told you all of these former things that were going to happen. Now look, they have all come true. Will you not declare it? I think what is what is being said here in the opening of six is, do you get the point? I am God. I am sovereign. My word will come true. Have you gotten that yet? Because I'm about to show you some new things. Is that that's a transition of thought that's happening here? It says, From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard them, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal, deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were a rebel. God does not hold back in these verses. What, he, what he's explaining in 7 through 8 is that he has not revealed these new things yet because it would have just been another opportunity for his people to, reve- to rebel. What he's saying is he reveals his plan in stages to limit the rebellion of his people and to limit their tendency to take that knowledge they are given and falsely claim that it is their own knowledge that they can then manipulate and explain away in how they want to explain it. So God is basically saying, I have always revealed my plan in stages to limit your own rebellion. Because I know the more I tell you, just the more opportunity you have to rebel against me and to twist what I'm saying into something that it isn't actually even remotely close to what I'm actually saying. God knows his people. And then in verses 9 through 11, he answers the implied question, which I think after you read all that, the the question would be, okay, why, why do you even bother revealing anything? Why do you continue to spare your anger and accomplish your deliverance if your people have always been so stubborn and rebellious? Verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory will not go to another. So the answer to this implied question of why bother? Why continue to be faithful to this people who are so stubborn and so rebellious? The answer is that he does it for his own sake and for his name. He made promises. He will accomplish them. Despite the rebellion of his people. He will not abandon or destroy his people because that would make him look just like all the other gods that cannot deliver. And the whole point is to show that he is not like the other gods because he is the actual God. He will not abandon or destroy his people like the other gods who cannot deliver because he is not just another God. He is the Lord of all. And what he says will happen. 
despite how much trouble his people make along the way. And then he begins another series of calls to listen to him in verses 12 to 22. And in 12 to 13, he repeats again, he does this a lot, he repeats again that he is the creator. He is the first and the last, or the alpha and omega, as the wording is picked up later in the Bible. He says in 12, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. So assemble all of you and listen. What an entrance. So in 12 to 13, he repeats that he is the creator. And then in 14 to 16, we have two calls to listen. You see this in 14 and in 16. 14, assemble all of you and listen. And then in 16, draw near to me. Hear this. We have two calls to listen in, in, in which I think in these two, what he's laying out is the former things and the new things. Just like how in the, the first section, 1 through 11, we saw in 3 through 8 that he had the former things and the new things. He told them and reminded them that the former things have all come true. And that leads into, have you gotten the point? Because I'm about to reveal some new things. And now I think that's what's similar to what's going on here. Because you have in 14 through 15, assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. The him, I think, refers back here, because what we're about to read, to Cyrus. The Lord loves Cyrus. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arms shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. In other words, this, the former thing, what has been promised all along, this deliverance, this exodus, this will happen. And then we transition to another call to listen. 16, draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. This 16 here seems to be something new, and there's a lot of debate and commentators about what's going on here. So I'm going to present what I think is a good solution, and it's not a hill I'm going to die on because there's so much in Isaiah that makes the point elsewhere. But what I think is going on is that 14 to 15 is Cyrus, which is basically the fulfillment of the former things that God has promised. So effectively deliverance part one, that Cyrus will come and he will do this. And then in 16, we read about the one whom the Lord sends along with his spirit. And I think this is a kind of a teaser, if you will, of the new things that are going to come, or deliverance part two. Because the wording here, now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit, this tying of the one who is sent with the coming of the spirit, and then this one who has come being sent directly by the Lord. This wording is so similar to what we see in 61.1 about the servant, which we'll read about or talk about a lot next week, um, but also of which Jesus quotes of himself that I think it is best to read this as a teaser of the new things that the servant will accomplish that are going to be laid out in the next section. So basically, and you have in the previous section, in 1 through 11, you had, I, I will accomplish and I have accomplished these former things. So get the point, because I'm about to do something new. And now he has, Cyrus is going to do these things. Oh, and by the way, this new person is going to come too, that I'm going to send with the Spirit. And this is kind of like a teaser, like the, the servant is kind of just like stepping on stage real quick and then walking off real quick. And it's a, a kind of a preview of what's going to come in the next section. And I think this uh, kind of teaser of a greater work to come is seen again in verses 17 to 22. 
In 17 through 19, the Lord laments over the peace that might have been if only his people had listened. In 17 through 19, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit and who leads you in the way that you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their names would have never been cut off or destroyed from me. And then if you actually put your fingers over 20 and 21, and then let's read 19 again and flow right into 22. Your offspring would have been like the sand of the descendants of the grains. And your name would have never been cut off or destroyed from before me. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. What is interesting is that in 20 to 21, we're, we're not, we're now we're finally getting to this call of the exiles to come out of Babylon. And it almost feels like an interruption of this declaration of the state of the people. That they have rejected the peace that God had offered them. There is no peace for the wicked. But then before that end, before that summary, you have these two verses that are kind of like almost intruded in there about the call of the captives to come back from exile. In these two verses, you have the call, the cry, go out from Babylon, free, sorry, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the desert. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. This is all incredibly purposeful Exodus imagery. That, like, proclaim this. Shout for joy with this. There is this new Exodus. And, and then in the very next verse, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Which is, again, almost like it should have been up with that last section before it. It's almost like this Exodus, this deliverance, is like an intrusion on this condemnation of the people. So 22 ends this section then with this declaration of wickedness. And you're like, what? Like That's the end? I thought we were supposed to end on like the shouting and the praise and the proclamation of joy about the Exodus. So why is this the last verse? Before I explain a little bit more, first, uh, this is totally free and aside. Yes, uh, 4822 and also 5721, which says the same thing. This is where the phrase no rest for the wicked comes from. It's from Isaiah, actually, two verses in Isaiah. Um, but then that was free. So anyways, if you, getting back to this section here, if you read 17 and 19, then skip to 22, it flows very well to say that the people have neglected and been unable to find peace. The return from the exile in 20 to 21 feels like an interruption into this condemnation. One commentator, I think, says it well to express the thought that is being communicated in these verses. What he says is a change of scene does not produce a change of heart. The people might be back. They might have been given the call to come back. And yes, that is a call for joy. It was a good thing. It was an act of deliverance that God provided with an incredible prophecy of a specific person called out over a hundred years before he, he was even in the position to do that. But their change of scene from Babylon back to their land did not produce a change of heart. That is why this section ends on such a downer. The people may be home, but they are not at peace with God. A greater deliverance than this is needed. The return from exile was just, in fact, a picture of a greater liberation or a greater redemption to come. The return was honestly a letdown. 
Caleb did an entire series on this this last summer through Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah, so I'm not going to rehash all of that. But just to summarize and kind of remind us how much of a letdown this was, only a small portion of the people returned. In fact, none of we don't have a record of the ten northern tribes, of any of them coming back, just from the southern two tribes. So only a small portion of the people returned. They had to convince some people from the tribe of Levi to come back so that they would have some priests. The walls of the city enclosed a much smaller area. Um, I was tempted to put that map up that Caleb had, but like it's like the city shrunk dramatically. And then also the rebuilt temple was not nearly as majestic as Solomon's. When the people laid the foundation, they couldn't tell if people were rejoicing or crying because there was rejoicing and lamenting going on at the same time over the fact that this temple was not going to be nearly as majestic as Solomon's. And then also we do not have recorded that God's glory ever came down to the rebuilt temple. So this return, this glorious thing, this first act of deliverance, this glorious prophecy of specifically Cyrus, who would do this act of deliverance and bring the people back, it honestly ends with disappointment. And that's how the Old Testament ends. In fact, after this long return for return from exile, the last historical event we have in the Old Testament and was the last sermon of Caleb's sermon series, is Nehemiah dealing with multiple sin issues that the people had literally just promised that they wouldn't do. And he gets pretty mad about it. You can go read the end of Nehemiah and find that. The return from the exile was an answer that the people needed. But it wasn't the answer that the people needed. That's the point of ending this section on this depressing note. The deliverance from exile was accomplished by an unexpected person in an unexpected way. And we're going to see that this is also going to be true, but in a much greater sense of the one who will bring the next and the greater deliverance. And that is the deliverance from their greater captivity or their sin. See, they wanted deliverance, and this is why they're shocked by Cyrus, and honestly why they're shocked by the next deliverer, the servant. You can read about that in the Gospels, about all the confusion and the shock about what Jesus came to do. They wanted deliverance on their terms, in their way, and to be able to keep living how they wanted. But God, fortunately, had a much greater plan, a deliverance that he will provide in a new way that will finally change their heart and pour down his spirit. That's why I think we see there in that teaser of the act that's going to come in uh, 40, um, sorry, the, the verse there of where the, the one who is sent, he will come with the spirit. And we also saw this earlier in chapter 32 and in chapter 44, where we see these grand, glorious visions of this restoration that's going to happen. And in those verses, you see it tied to the pouring of the Holy Spirit, because none of this is going to actually happen without the Holy Spirit. It is to this plan, this plan of a greater deliverance, that we will look next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this text as disappointing and depressing as it is. It is so because you have greater plans than what our plans would be. I thank you that you continue and accomplish your plans despite the stubbornness of your people. And I thank you that you do not always act in the ways that we want. Because what we've seen time and time again, and you've given us so many stories in the Bible, is that what we think we need is not right. What we think we need might be good, but you have even greater plans. And I thank you that you 
have declared yourself the God of all and shown yourself to be God by accomplishing your plans and that we get to read about that next week as we look to the work of your servant who accomplished a much greater deliverance that the people actually needed and that we needed and need. Amen.